Welcome to episode 15 of the Water Word Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Fiona Lewis. Dr. Lewis earned a Master of Science in Nutrition and Wellness from Andrews University and became a nationally credentialed registered dietitian in 2007. In 2013, she earned a doctorate in public health with an emphasis in preventative health from Loma Linda University. She will address the broader social factors that contribute to health. She'll also address advocacy, ways we can get involved in addressing social determinants of health. Thank you so much for joining. I believe you'll enjoy this conversation. Some of us don't get to choose where we live. And um, in our home, in our neighborhoods where um, where it's densely populated, like we, we don't have a choice. Some of us do not have a choice, of, you know, in terms of social um, or physical distancing. Um, you know, it's just a matter of perspective in terms of my training. So as a clinical dietitian, um, and, and just in general as a dietitian, there was a lot of emphasis on um, individual choices. But then the population public health approach um, just shed a whole new perspective on the fact that um, there are disparities and the disparities exist because of structural, um, as we refer to them, social determinants of health. Dr. Lewis, welcome to the Water Word Podcast. Thank you so much, um, Ryan. Um, I appreciate you having me on. One of the things that I discovered in going over your bio was your extensive interest in public health. Could you describe for listeners why public health is of such interest and has such urgency for you? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and incidentally, now it's referred to um, really as population health. Back then, when I was doing my doctorate, um, it was more of a public health broad um, approach to health. But now um, in the field, it's more closely re- referred to as uh, population health. But anyhow, I remember when I was working as a dietitian, in New York, um, I was still there and I was working at uh, White Plains Hospital. And um, this was towards the end of my, um, I guess, uh, working <laughs> experience, I would call it, in the clinical field of dietetics. Um, and I would notice a lot of the uh, illnesses that I um, saw people in, you know, in the hospital um, actually related to lifestyle and things that were more of an infrastructure, environmental um, uh, cause. So more of like uh, social determinants of health. So it was related to their, um, to their what was or was not in their neighborhood. What, um, it was beyond personal, um, personal factors, you know, um, racism and, 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 and um, lots of different things, housing. And so I saw this while I was working at um, White Plains Hospital and I really saw it 
at my subsequent job before I went on and did public, public health um, with visiting nurse services of New York when I would do home visits in the South Bronx. And I would really see my, um, this disconnect between me giving uh, nutrition advice or nutrition counseling and what was possible for those people who were um, actually receiving the counseling. Like if I, for instance, if I say, um, suggested, you know, eat more fruits and vegetables to keep it basic. But when I uh, pass by the, the, the stores and the vegetables and the fruit um, are brown and they cost like $5, you know, my concerns were around those things. So um, shortly after in 2010, I decided that I wanted to take a more broad systemic um, approach to health and learn what that would be like, not to only focus on um, the individual behaviors of the people that I work with, but think broadly, like how does their environment, how does a lack of services, how does a lack of access, how does racism, how does, you know, how are other things, social, broader social uh, factors contributing to their health. That's interesting because very often when health is presented, there is a heavy personal obligation and personal responsibility. So much so that it would seem that the health choices are just decisions but you're indicating that there are many other factors which play into one's health. Absolutely. Um, and and, and we, see, we see that now um, magnified in our communities of color. Um, so for instance, you know, the housing issues surrounding COVID and the fact that some, some people, some of us don't get to choose where we live and um, in our home, in our neighborhoods where um, where it's densely populated, like we we don't have a choice. Some of us do not have a choice of you know in terms of social um, or physical distancing. Um, you know, it's just a matter of perspective in terms of my training. So as a clinical dietitian, um, and and just in general as a dietitian, there was a lot of emphasis on um, individual choices, but then the population public health approach, um, just shed a whole new perspective on the fact that, um, there are disparities and the disparities exist because of structural, um, as we refer to them, social determinants of health. Um, sidewalks, you know, we, we talk about, you know, obesity and a lot of times we want to make light of what, what somebody has on their plate when um, if we think about it um, in communities where the walkability scores are very low because people do not have access to sidewalks or safe, um, um, safe parks and you know, we talk about childhood obesity. Well, can, can, can the child go outside and play? Is it safe for them to do that? Is there adequate lighting? So there's this, um, I'm always very cognizant while I still work with people on um, individual behaviors. I'm always very cognizant in the back of my mind 
um, and do my best to, to consider the, the um, broader uh, perspective on health and how that might actually affect um, an individual's behavior. Could you tell us more why you believe we had such a negative or why the disparities were so high? I guess I can, I can address the question or give an answer from the standpoint of the pre-existing uh, medical conditions. Um, so a lot of the lifestyle-related illnesses, uh, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, um, high cholesterol, so on and so forth, those um, illnesses, unfortunately, disproportionately um, are higher in our communities of color. So going into COVID, we already um, were not on a level playing field in terms of our body's ability to be able to fight off the virus. So while having those illnesses, pre-existing illnesses, chronic illnesses, were not, did not increase our risk of getting um, COVID when we got it, because our because of um, either our, our um, a housing situation, you know, densely packed housing, or the jobs that we have, because for a lot of communities of colors, the articles that I read, the jobs were um, didn't make it possible for us to physical distance, and we still had to go to work. And so between the the jobs and the uh, the housing, and then we have this situation where we're already disproportionately affected by those um, chronic illnesses that would cause us to have less of an um, immune response in some ways. And then if you think about it, added to that, the foods and uh, um, the foods that are in our neighborhoods, you know, a lot of times in communities of color, we live in neighborhoods that are considered food desert, so absence of good quality food, or food swamps, which is just an overrun of unhealthy foods. So going into COVID, unfortunately, um, the disparities and the inequities that were not addressed prior to COVID actually were just magnified when we got into it. And I guess I could speak to the faith community from this um, standpoint is that a lot of us in our communities of colors, we do um, part of our tradition, part of our who we are is to gather together in faith communities. That's how we make it, we support, that's how we grow. Um, and so all those things come, you know, combined really um, pretty much just, just showed us where we are as a, as a community and as a nation. So you've indicated poverty connects to health, race connects to health, environment connects to health. Right, right. Collectively known as um, the social determinants of health. So that we can never um, think about health as just this individual factor. And it's just as simple as, you know, an individual needs to eat more fruits and vegetables um, or get some exercise. It's not that simple. It's layered, um, especially when we see what is happening um, 
around systemic racism. And if we think about, um, there's a researcher, um, his name is David Williams, and he's done a lot of research, and there are others who've done a lot of research around how racism actually physically affects us. Like, so if we think about systemic racism, especially for Black men, think about all the um, information and all the negative biomarkers that would um, be produced in, in a Black man's body, um, if when he's experiencing this systemic racism over um, many, many years, so that he's at increased risk for heart disease and all the other chronic illnesses. So it goes beyond the fact that he just didn't eat well. Racism actually, whether he um, figure out how to cope or not, it doesn't matter. That, that trauma, that continual trauma, actually does have um, some implications for his, his physical health. So when we make light of things like, um, you know, there was a lot going on with Black women's here or how Black women appeared in, um, at work and how they were received at work. And no matter how much um, a, a Black um, uh, professional showed up and if their culture, if they weren't accepted based on their culture, their hair or their clothing or whatever the case is, then there was this, um, this implicit bias or whatnot and microaggressions, all those things actually have physical implications in terms of um, chronic stress, chronic inflammation, and will increase our risk for, for those um, chronic illnesses, the diabetes, the hypertension, and, and so on. You touched on the disconnect between advice and possibility. What does that do for someone like yourself who is trying to meet needs of individuals and you recognize it's more than just effort on their part? There are other factors that are, are coming against them, so to speak. Right, right. Well, it's, it's pretty daunting, you know? Um, but, but that's why it's important for, for us in whatever field we're, we're in to remain, um, to remain educated about things in our government and, and learn about policies and how, how that really, how the policies play out and who determines um, things like zoning. Um, so getting involved or at least understanding the process of determining what a particular neighborhood might look like and um, including if a grocery store that provides fresh fruits and vegetables would be there um understanding what with farm subsidies and and you know there are a lot of intricacies that uh, we could get lost in but at the same time we do need to know those um those those, those pieces of information um so that we can at least be advocates in our profession um, so that we could use our platform when we when we have one. I mean, Facebook and social media, and, um, Twitter and whatnot. I believe that's why they exist. Yes, we interact socially, but at the same time, we do need to um, use our platform responsibly um, to kind of shed light on those things. Um, 
you know, and, and do our best to, to, when we interact with individuals, to, to ask them those questions, to ask them those broad questions about um, their neighborhood and um, what, what resources they have access to and, um, and not just continually assume that it's uh, a lack of effort or motivation on, on their part. And if we're able to connect them with the uh, resources that they need, or if it doesn't exist, um, try to be the person who will set the, the, the spark going to create a fire to get the, a community where it needs to be. And Dr. Lewis, you didn't just land in this environment where you're suddenly recognizing all the factors that play into health. What was it about your childhood that you think led you in this direction? Oh, that is a fantastic question. I remember um, when I first moved from the United, from uh, Guyana uh, to the U.S., um, with my mom and sister back in the mid, the late 80s, um, over a period of, I would say five to seven years, about five years after we moved here from Guyana, my mom's siblings, um, it seemed like one after the other, they all started passing away from um, some sort of lifestyle related illness. At the time when I was growing up, um, I didn't realize that that's what it was. Um, but as I got older um, and, and started going to college and became a little more aware of the world, I started to realize that these are illnesses that they could have actually, had they known, had they um, had access to care and all these other factors, they could have still been alive. They didn't have to die from um, heart disease or a stroke or um, cancer related or um, diabetes related complications or um, any other lifestyle preventable related um, illness. And, and so that really shaped my decision to move from going into a forensic science fire investigation straight on into health. Awesome. And you've spoken about individuals, I'm imagining communities, you've done workshops for um, churches, groups, different groups. How do we get individuals um, who, as we've discussed, have factors that challenge their desire to eat and live better? How do we get them from uh, desire to possibility, even when poor and faced with environmental race and poverty issues? You know, I, I believe in every community, there's, a, there's a, in a sense, the resilience and the, um, the basic fundamental tools that, will, that, they, that that community needs to thrive. And so um, one of the communities that I've worked with here in Mississippi, I've seen um, one of my colleagues, um, she's so engaged in, in, in leveraging the um, assets of the community um, and, and things like doing a, um, 
neighborhood garden and then um, working with after that project is complete trying to get that into a, a farmers market kind of forum so I, I think um, and, and I love this question because a lot of times from the academic standpoint research standpoint a lot of times we don't necessarily see that most of what the community um, we're working with they actually have what they need we don't need to come in and be a savior we're not trying to come in and save anybody it's just to um actually genuinely develop relationships with um the, the people in the communities we're serving and find out what solutions will work for them and just come alongside as allies to help to strengthen their existing um, community resources and assets to help them out. So it's not, you know, that's a great question because it's not like a savior approach. It's more of um, what really is in the community already, including the people. There are key people who are in the communities um, who, you know, they they are the leaders and 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 just connecting with them and and working alongside them is 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 priceless it truly is priceless and and you indicated the community has things they need could you describe what you've seen in terms of the resources of under resourced communities like what things can they start with in terms of a healthier lifestyle absolutely so um, the particular community I worked um, in um, here in Mississippi, rural community, um, there's already, like I mentioned, the garden, there was already space for a community garden. So it was just a matter of someone mobilizing the rest of the community or, you know, bringing the community together as a group around gardening. Um, the church is always a an amazing resource because there's always strong lead there's typically i won't say always but typically strong leadership around the church and you already have a captive audience so that a community garden a community kitchen um are things that that people and and this doesn't have to be one particular church can you, if you could imagine um if several churches across a particular community decided that they were going to have um, a community garden where uh, community members could have a little plot, a little area where they could grow a few vegetables. And then in that particular church, usually churches will have um, kitchens because that's what you do. You have potluck. And so um, then they're in that kitchen. That kitchen is also used to talk about health and food and, and learn how to prepare healthful foods. Um, so I think it's just a matter of figuring out what assets the community has, including the leaders. Um, the particular community I worked with also had a lot of um, health councils. It was the mayor's health council. And this is a very small um, rural town, but the resilience and um, the the the, the the spirit in which they they embraced what you know what I brought in addition to what they were already doing was was really amazing. 
community leader, for example, recognizes what you recognize that healthy food costs more. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'll use that just as an example because the other example I wanted to talk about was more environmental. Uh, for example, you may discover that in your community, many of the children just happen to have respiratory issues and you discover it's because of the, I guess the, the way transit passes through the community, the air pollution, what have you, are those tangible things that communities can actually address and change or are there are those issues so structural in nature and we could start with the expensive food and then the air issue are those structural issues that can be readily changed or do either of those issues take um a lot of work um i'll answer it this way i'll say Yes and yes, you can change. I'm a very um, optimistic person. So yes, it can be changed. Um, is it complicated? Sometimes because, you know, I may think that I could just change by getting a, um, a garden of some kind or or, or, or try to do something at a very grassroots level and then realize that there are policies and statutes and ordinances that are in place that um, kind of will just counteract my work and make it harder. So for instance, um, the same community I worked in, they do spraying, meaning like it's a, it's a rural place, they have a lot of, um, farms and and apparently they spray uh, pesticides and so there are high um, percentages of illnesses related to the pesticides and so um, that definitely is a policy issue that definitely is a beyond the um, grassroots effort that is I'm pretty sure that's beyond the city council and so that will take that particular um, scenario and the one that you described with the um, with the with the uh, respiratory issues. Those are are you're going to be pushing for a while, perhaps a couple of years, until you really find out where is the source, who allows this, and how can we change the the laws on the books. Um, I think the food issue might be a little bit easier to handle from the grassroots efforts because um, it can be as simple as doing the, the, the community garden um, initiatives that surround people having their own gardens in, in any kind of way, initiatives that surround um, perhaps partnering with um, local farmers um, to, to ask them to that are more affordable. So I'll give a, a tangible example. One of the farmers that I work with um, from time to time here, um, who incidentally, I do a show called Kitchen Conversations, and she was actually on my Kitchen Conversation show, I believe it was last week. And so um, her, her name is Dr. Cindy Ears, and her urban farm in Jackson, Mississippi, is called um, Footprint Farms. And so what they do is um, partner with rural areas like the one I'm describing to actually ship their produce boxes 
to those particular areas. And oftentimes they will receive grant funding to help offset the cost of, you know, it, to make it reasonable. So they do that in that particular rural community in the De Mississippi Delta. They do it across the Mississippi Delta. They do it here locally in Jackson. So um, it's just a matter of finding out what resources are available. The other day I was on um, another show and, and someone called to ask about the same thing. They don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables and they have particular um, vendors already there. And my suggestion was why not speak to that, those existing vendors and demand because it's about supply and demand. Ask, can, can you bring in some fruits and vegetables or some healthy foods that, um, that would be affordable and, and from that grassroots effort, go back and forth with the vendors in the local community to find out what can they do. Um, incidentally, one of the things that um, Dr. Ayers does with Footprint Farms is that she, she takes uh, SNAP EBT benefits. So um, it's just a matter of trying to work with what resources are available and asking. There's nothing wrong with asking questions of um, vendors and, and negotiating prices. We will continue our conversation with Dr. Lewis after a short word from our sponsor. So you see individuals, communities, groups, families on the the end of the spectrum where health is impacted because of diet and other issues. I, I realize that your emphasis at Loma Linda was on preventative health. Could you discuss what a preventative health focus is in terms of your work and ministry? Absolutely. So um, I would give throughout concepts like food is medicine and um, lifestyle medicine. So um, always primary, primary prevention of, of um, chronic illnesses. So I'm on the spectrum to make sure that people don't get ill, you know, based on helping them um, recognize things in their lifestyles that they could change, they could adjust. Um, yeah, and then there's secondary and tertiary pre prevention when someone already has a chronic illness. Um, working with them to leverage their lifestyle um, for, if possible, the reversal of a lifestyle-related um, chronic illness. So, for instance, um, pre-diabetes, it hasn't gone to diabetes yet, so what could we do with um, eating, sleeping, um, physical activity, and other um, lifestyle medicine-related um, factors, what could we do with that to help you to move from pre-diabetes back to no diabetes at all? And even with type 2 diabetes, um, clinically, there really is not, the, the medical community has not recognized that there is a reversal, but there have been many people who, you know, adopting a plant-based lifestyle and changing other aspects of their um, lifestyle who have managed to pretty much beat diabetes, um, type 2 diabetes that is, meaning their symptoms are so 
uh, under control, so um, non-existent that pretty much you would say it's a reversal. And I could give an example. Um, I love this this gentleman. His name is, um, he's a Brooklyn Borough President, uh, Mr. Eric Adams. He is phenomenal. If you Google him, Eric Adams. Uh, Brooklyn and he also struggles with diabetes, correct? He did. He has a really compelling um, story where he struggled with type 2 diabetes. His family members, including his mom, um, he was experiencing stomach ulcers. Um, eyesight was being um, affected. He started to have what we call neuropathy, which is um, numbness and tingling in the hands and feet and on and on and on. His A1C was really, really high. And so um, after adopting a plant-based um, eating pattern and changing different aspects of his lifestyle, we, would, we could pretty much say there was reversal. Um, when he found out, when he went back to the doctor and realized that you know all his numbers were normal, the eyesight started improving and, and all those things, and he's good now. Um, he shared that with his family members, including his mom, who was, I believe, like around 80 at that time. And she had diabetes for many, many years. She actually got off, if I'm not um, mistaken, she got off her medication. And, and the reference for that is um, Forks Over Knives. He was one of the featured um, people in Forks Over Knives. And um, he has been very instrumental in moving, I believe, in Bellevue Hospital in the direction of plant-based eating um, and lifestyle medicine as a preventative and even um, curative um, uh, tool for people who are struggling with lifestyle-related illnesses, including type 2 diabetes. So now Bellevue Hospital is one of the leaders um, as it relates to lifestyle medicine and, uh, and plant-based eating. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Do you believe in terms of health that the faith community has at points uh, victim-shamed individuals who have the desire but could not get to that point you spoke about, that, that point between, that tension between um, desire, advice, and possibility? You know, uh, you probably don't get me in trouble, but <laughs> uh, I do, I do. I, I, not only um, with health, I believe um, as a culture, especially in our communities of color, in, in our faith communities, that we do do this victim blaming and victim shaming and um, lose sight of the fact that there are other factors that the, the faith community as a leader could actually help that person or those individuals um, if the faith communities as a leader, as a body got together and, and actually engaged in some of those grassroots efforts. Um, I believe it's in Maryland. And also um, there's another um, Adventist church in, in, in California, I attended the church. Um, both of those churches, they have been leaders in addressing social determinants of health, not just racism, but also some of the health-related um, determinants 
as it relates to how as a leader as a body you know as a body in the faith community we have more power and more influence than as you know one individual church member trying is trying to do something and i think we miss that opportunity because we are oftentimes blaming the person you know person can't lose weight because they don't have willpower that's not necessarily true the person can't lose weight because in their neighborhood or wherever you know their community there's structural issues like um they can't they can't walk outside so then here comes the church getting petitions going to the mayor going to the city council here comes a, a socially um plugged in church leader or, or a group of church leaders who will actually take that cause on and interact with the 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 um the local governments and and learn about policies it makes a difference it makes a huge difference in terms of um advocacy versus victim um shaming and blaming i want to touch on some of the parallels between what you did in mississippi with the let's cook let's eat let's talk let's move community-based project what did you see in terms of and I don't know, I, you know, I should ask it this way. Is it a recently started project or is it something that's been ongoing for a while? Um, the project started last um, May and it actually ended in May. That was one of, unfortunately, when you're working with um, funding from the government, the funding will come to an end and then, you know, the sustainability, you would hope, that there were some, some some seeds that were planted that would help with the sustainability of, of what you've done. Oh, so you got funding for that project? Yes, that, that was a collaborative project with a colleague of mine who um, uh, wrote a grant and got funded with the USDA. And so some of the funds from that particular grant helped to, um, helped to create that let's cook, let's eat, let's talk, let's move. Um, program in addition to other things that she was doing in that particular community in the Mississippi Delta. And could, and could you tell us about each prong of the project? Why Let's Cook? Absolutely. That's my uh, passion, my heart, my soul, my baby. Um, and I put it this way, there's one thing for, for me as a registered dietitian, um, one thing for a nutrition health professional to, to, to say to a person, um, you know, you should eat better or give some sort of information around nutrition and then the person doesn't know what to do. So for me, cooking is um, skill building. So the combination of the education and the skill building um, actually helps to change behavior. That, that helps to create a more sustainable, um, an approach that will be more sustainable to help someone transform their health. So that's why I chose to incorporate Let's Cook. It was beyond just information. It was like, let's get in the, the well, it was a makeshift kitchen, it was a pop-up. Let's get in the makeshift kitchen and actually cook some vegetables and whole grains and you taste it, what it tastes like. You have questions. We talk about health in between, but we're actually engaging around food. 
And then the the, uh, the let's talk portion, we actually sat down um, twice a month. I did uh, two, uh, once or twice a month webinars where we did specifically speak about um, lifestyle and the different um, components of lifestyle, sleep, stress, um, healthy eating, plant-based eating in particular, um, would would actually be positive um, positive determinants of, of of good health. So um, for that, let's talk. I actually framed it around um, the blue zone concept, where you know longevity exists. Uh, people are living in certain parts of the world to be eighty, a hundred, ninety, and not only are they living longer, but they're um, they're healthy when they're living longer. And what habits did they actually uh, say that they practice um, to 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 uh, to get to this longevity stage and um, talked about a little bit about Loma Linda because Loma Linda is one of the blue zones and then I also talked um, shared about Huntsville Alabama because although it was not documented as a blue zone um, the question when we talk about blue zones um, is that we are the the black people we're the communities of color that experience longevity in the United States and um, Huntsville, Alabama um, unofficially is one of those places. Um, and then the let's move is that, um, you know, we really can't have, <laughs> you eat well, but we still need to move. We're such a sedentary society. You know, a lot of what we do requires sitting. And so, um, Part of the incentive for being in the program, the funding paid for the, the uh, committee members to use a new gym in, in the facility um, where we housed um, the, the program. Awesome. And Dr. Lewis, could you talk to us about your companies. Um, I know you have LLBJ Culinary and Wellness Enterprises LLC, and she did that food. Tell listeners as much as you can about those companies. Sure. So back in 2017, um, I walked away for um, <laughs> for the first time from my academic um, career to start a culinary nutrition business, which is the LLBJ Culinary and Wellness Enterprises, LLC. Um, I really saw the need to engage people around cooking. As I mentioned before, I, as a dietitian, um, we engage people a lot around nutrition education, but what I felt was missing um, was really having people connect with the information, but around something that is a lot more enjoyable and experiential, which is the cooking. So I, I started LLBG in 2017, a nutrition and wellness startup. Um, and since then I've uh, played with different concepts about how best to engage people um, around color, culinary nutrition and wellness. Um, so at, Last year, I believe it was, I, I added the She Did That Food brand because one of the things I do want to um, keep doing is connecting with women, teens and girls um, of color around healthy eating and, and, and food. So one of my quotes, I can self-quote, 
is that <laughs> women teens and girls who are um who are educated and empowered to nurture and nourish themselves actually nourish and nurture themselves their families their communities and generations because if we think about it um what a woman eats or doesn't eat or a woman's lifestyle um does really affect the health of her offspring and that offspring's health then affects the health of future offspring so i think it's really important um in my work to engage women teens and girls of color um, around healthy eating and help really help us to understand that it's more than just you know the way we look how well we're endowed and, and those kind of things and it, it speaks more to the fact that we have power to actually change the, the trajectory of the health of our family members we get the chance to actually create a, a legacy of health generations of health so um right now through um she did that food i do uh what's called a virtual community kitchen every thursday at um 6 p.m central standard time where either i do a cooking demo of some kind um, around plant-based cooking and eating and talk about the ingredients talk about the health benefits or i invite one of my um chef colleagues or health colleagues who are health professional to um actually do a demonstration of um, a plant-based uh dish and typically i i try to make sure that it's um around culture uh, maybe a cultural food every now and again so when i started i started with roti that's you know part of my culture and people who are interested in learning how to make roti um and i open up the virtual community kitchen to anyone who um, wants to just be a part of a community where we come together during covid to 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 just check in with each other to have a few laughs and then to learn something new in terms of taking care of our, our health and our bodies. Um, I also do what's called Kitchen Conversations, um, which is, I've done it every week this, this uh, month, but next month, because of my other projects, it's gonna be something monthly, where I invite um, people who are doing some amazing things around foods, we talk about food systems, we talk about food advocacy, we talk about food sovereignty. Um, I've also done some um, master classes around health um, for, for our kitchen conversations, but um, most recently I had a friend of mine who has an NGO in Uganda and we had a talk about how they're um, tackling food insecurity over there through her NGO. And then I mentioned last week, um, I had a conversation with the local farmer here to talk about food systems and agricultural policies and blacks in, 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 in agriculture and, and farming. So um, those are some of the projects. Um, my upcoming projects um, also include beating diabetes in the kitchen. Um, this is for people who have prediabetes or type two diabetes who really wanna lean in um, to learn not only how to, what they should do in terms of changing their lifestyle and their eating, but also what they, how they can actually get in the kitchen. We get in the kitchen together and we prepare foods and, and so on so that they can have um, 
a better foundation and the tools that they need to, to, to do that. Um, and then I'm working real hard on um, getting my spice brand up and running late next, next month, if not early um, August. And um, <laughs> because I'm such a, uh, an advocate for fruits and vegetables, the, the spice brand really is going to be based on um, eating more locally produced um, vegetables and, and, and fruits and um, just making it flavorful. So the point of the spice brand really is to make uh, plant foods flavorful um, for people to kind of move in that direction. Here, what would be the plan of someone with your background and insight um, for a church who is looking for leadership where health, diet, um, nutrition is concerned? Um, well, one of the first places we were always taught to, um, to go is to do a community needs assessment and not, not assume and even hold uh, town halls and, and, and those kind of things and not assume that we know what the community, our com the communities we serve need. Um, so the first plan of action really would be is to ask how can we support you and how can we help you? Um, the, the other plan of action I would say um, is to think around sovereignty and, and ownership. So what, so specifically about food, what part of the food system, when I say food system, um, whether it's growing food or um, selling food or preparing food, what part of the food system could um, community members take ownership of in, in their community? Um, growing is, is, you know, especially if it's at the level of the church community with a large garden and then divvying up whatever is grown um, is a good place to start. Um, then I would talk about ownership and sovereignty in terms of the economics. So um, who has a small business? Who wants to start a small business? Who, um, how can we support who has a small business? How can we support um, someone who wants to start a small business and doesn't know how? Um, how can we create a community where um, there is a, a, a thriving, healthy economic climate so that their jobs, we generate our own jobs and we generate um, our own thriving economy. Um, and I say that because that is also part of the social determinants of health. If I don't have a job, then I don't have um, necessarily good access to health care and health benefits. Um, never mind that, you know, this color of my skin might determine the kind of care that I get, but just let's say that all things were equal. I, having a job, having access um, to capital really makes a difference in terms of health and thriving economies because um, there is a social, in part of social determinants of health, economics does play a role. So the, the church can really um, find out what's happening, what does the community think it needs, and really think about 
how to engage the community members around ownership and sovereignty. And those would be the first steps. And I, I appreciate that. Right, right. So I mean, listening, listening to the needs of the community without assuming what the needs are. Right. And of course, there has to be a lot, you know, the spiritual aspects of prayer and what, what is God, how is God leading us? Actually, one of my favorite books is um, Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. And he talks a lot about um, God is already at work. And we just need to be asking God, where is he working and how can we join him? Join him. So to answer your question, the, the, spiritual, the spiritual aspect of that is, um, yeah, ask God, what does he want? What does he want us to do? How does he want us to respond? But certainly looking at all that we've learned from COVID, there is, we as communities of colors, we have to own things we really do have to have ownership of some aspect of what we eat, um, the services that we frequent and support, but we don't actually um, have them in our communities as owners of them. We, we need to own things. I'm, I feel very strongly about that. So in fact, to your point, those answers or reaching out to get feedback, those things could be happening now as, as opposed to when uh, normal comes again, quote unquote. Absolutely. I mean, listen, we have, um, <laughs> we have Zoom and, and all the other technologies. So, you know, as a, as a church body, as a church leader, we have, um, our, our, our congregation's contact information. So um, what do I want to say? Um, those, those town hall meetings, those strat strategizing meetings can actually be happening even if we can't gather together in person. Plans and, and prayers and fasting and um, those kind of activities can, can actually be happening so that when we come out of this, however we come out of this, whatever normal will look like, there is, there has been taught um, thought and, and prayer, and we weren't just sitting around waiting for normal to happen. And Dr. Lewis, I'd love you to share something about your book. You're an also, you're, you're an also, you are also an author of a number of books. Could you tell listeners about Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Um, yes, I love, um, I, I think God does this. He, he allows us to do things first to heal us and bless us. And then um, through that healing and blessing process, he, uh, then he moves for us to use the same thing for others. So I remember um, I was going through the transition of leaving academia and um, moving into this new sphere of entrepreneurship and, and I don't even know how to describe it, just a, an adventure with the Lord at this point. Um, and so my first book is called A Flavorful Life, 12 Spiritual um, Lessons from the Kitchen, and it's actually a devotional. And um, I wrote it um, from the lens of cooking, 
and how God spoke to me about spiritual principles like waiting. So waiting would be the equivalent of maybe like marinating something. You have to, you know, you pray about something, then you let it marinate. Um, and, and different culinary techniques and how they, they had spiritual implications. Um, so that particular book was my first book. And then um, the subsequent books that I've written, um, they're all, all um, devotionals where people have a chance to grab, on to grab onto a concept and then actually uh, have the Holy Spirit talk to them about um, whatever it is that they're going through. So there is another one called, um, Won't He Do That? Um, sister, yes, he will. So um, that's for women and, and just to help them. Um, it's a gratitude journal. And then there's another one um, that says um, Align, Hustle, and Grind. Um, and that's really for female entrepreneurs to help us to remember that the, whatever we're grinding and hustling, um, God is really the author of that vision. And um, he is a sustainer of it as well. So we do need to make sure that we stay aligned with him um, because we hear a lot in the entrepreneurship world about hustling, grinding, and aligning. And if we're not careful, um, God is somewhere else and we're on the other side. And, 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 and I, you know, I just want us to remember God. There's another book um, written for young girls. It's called Of This I'm Confident. It's a, a um, a, a confidence challenge. And um, I wrote that because I remember um, what it was like growing up uh, as a teenager, uh, preteen, and even as a woman and how, um, how my, my upbringing impacted my confidence and my ability to believe in myself as an entrepreneur, as a person who was deserving of a doctorate degree and everything else that I've done, um, you know, so I just wanted to help young girls um, to, to, to get that foundation and at least have their parents, if they got that book for them, have their parents um, work with them to build up their confidence so that by the time they're um, young women, they're strong and they're bold, they're confident, and they know that where their confidence and their worth and their value actually comes from. And then I have a few... Um, black love challenge journals and um you know i'm black i represent the black community and especially in a time like this when when you know any good news um any positive images anything positive from our, our community um warms your heart and, and make you feel um make you feel good so those um black love challenge books were actually inspired by the the Black Love um, documentary by Cody, um, I, I forgot his wife, but uh, by that particular couple. And I just wanted to contribute my voice and my ideas to um, supporting, encouraging, nourishing um, Black couples to, to embrace and, and to appreciate the love that they have. So it's just a, a tool to help um, Black couples to nurture um, their love. Awesome, awesome. Dr. Fiona Lewis believes that she's a creator and builder, like the God who created her. One of her favorite names of God is Elohim. She enjoys building and creating new things. 
she also likes supporting others and seeing them win. Dr. Lewis, could you tell listeners where they can find you, your work, and your journey? Is there a place they can go to to tap into the movement? Absolutely, and I love that, the movement, because <laughs> it is. Um, my website is shedidthatfood.com. Um, Instagram and Facebook, it's she did that food. Um, and the, the journals, the books that I mentioned are actually available on Amazon. Thank you so much. Uh, we've spent some time talking, but I should let listeners know that Dr. Lewis is a very good friend of mine, a friend of the family. She's my one of the godmothers of my daughter as well. And I'm so proud of what you're doing. I'm impacted by it. And I can't tell you how much of an honor it is to have you as a guest on the Water Word podcast. Thank you so much. It, it is an honor to be um, Tali Poo's grand um, godmom and, and, and to represent um, the community that we, we both came from and, and still um, are part of. Thank you for having me on. And I'll let listeners know that even though she's no longer in New York City, she was New York City raised. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Lewis, thank you so much. Um, I will post the podcast soon. There were a lot of great takeaways. And I believe that you've given our listeners a lot of pardoned upon a lot of food for thought. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much and have a good evening. You as well. This is the most important and crucial period of your lives for what you do now and what you decide now at this age may well determine which way your life shall go. And the question is, whether you have a proper, a solid, and a sound blueprint. And I want to suggest some of the things that should be in your life's blueprint. Number one in your life's blueprint should be a deep belief in your own dignity, your own worth, and your own somebodyness. Don't allow anybody to make you feel that you are nobody. Always feel that you count. Always feel that you have worth. And always feel that your life has ultimate significance. Secondly, in your life's blueprint, you must have, as a basic principle, the determination to achieve excellence in your various fields of endeavor. You're going to be deciding as the days and the years unfold what you will do in life, what your life's work will be. Once you discover what it will be, set out to do it and to do it well. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. For it isn't by size that you win or you fail. Be the best of whatever you are. Finally, in your life's blueprint, must be a commitment to the eternal principles of beauty, love, and justice. Well, life for none of us 
has been a crystal star, but we must keep moving. We must keep going. If you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl, but by all means, keep moving.